The coronavirus pandemic is guilty of disrupting most of our lives and has led to a variety of changes. But what it has also done is shine a light on our healthcare system, all the incredible staff that work tirelessly to keep us healthy and all the people who are involved in research that can lead to medical breakthroughs like a vaccine. There are many ways in which each and every one of us can support these efforts. I'm thinking back to the Pins for Praise challenge the Academy set up and all the amazing pieces the competition attracted. But there is an inspirational designer based in Australia who has made it her practice to interweave healthcare and wearable objects. To talk about her body of work, her practice and the challenges and benefits of interdisciplinary collaborations, I have invited Dr. Leah Heiss, Melbourne-based designer and RMIT researcher working at the nexus of design, health and technology. Her practice transverses device, service and experience through a process which is deeply collaborative, working with experts from nanotechnology, engineering and health services through to manufacturing. With much excitement, I would like to say welcome, Leah. Oh, thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited. So, Leah, to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? I focus on making wearable health technologies, also services and experiences that aim to improve or save life. Um, I'm at RMIT University, which is a really large university in Australia. And as part of my role there, I head up the wearables and sensing network alongside two of my collaborators. Um, and that's really focused on how do we get all the great brains into the same space so that we can develop better and more human-centered wearable technologies. You hold a Master of Design degree from the Spatial Information Architecture Laboratory at RMIT University in Melbourne. You have investigated, I believe, empathy through, through design in your PhD. And since you have made a lot of things that build bridges between, for example, medical devices and aesthetic jewelry items, how did you get interested in this? Yeah, so I sort of stumbled into the world of wearables through my master's, which is back in the early days, 2004 to 2006. Um, and as that, that particular body of work was looking at how do we develop wearable garments that um, might facilitate a remote sense of empathy, so very timely for the condition that we're experiencing now. And I collaborated with signal processing engineers and fashion designers to uh, craft an array of quite beautiful garments that sensed and transmitted heartbeat over distance. And they were looking at this idea that, you know, by having an extra layer of embodied connection, hopefully our long distance phone calls wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> um, yeah, and sort of after that, I started to work a lot more sort of in the healthcare sector. But I, I started my work really in that wearable technology for empathetic engagement space. And do you feel that because of the scale of smaller objects or things that you carry close to your skin, that is easier to do than, for example, something that is like a screen that's distanced from us? Or is that something you've that's pulled you towards sort of jewelry and, and wearable technologies? Absolutely. Yeah. So I see um, jewelry as an amazing site for investigation. I'm not trained as a jeweler. So I approach it as I did training as an interior designer, actually. So I approach it as um, kind of a spatial and an empathetic intervention. So these are sites for investigation and they're very small and as you say, they're on the body, they're very intimate and very close to us. And the thing I love so much about jewellery is that we have our own sort of pre-existing, very strong relationships with um, jewellery artefacts. And you can 
using nanotechnologies and microelectronics, you can think about ways to veneer you know, technologies over existing precious artifacts or to create new precious artifacts that, that are amazing and precious and wonderful, but also keep us well and healthy. You have produced many wearable objects. I've read about the rings you made that apply insulin in an innovative way and a wearable cardiac monitor called the Smart Heart Necklace in collaboration with the St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and the University and the Nossel Institute for Global Health. How important do you think it is that medical devices are designed as these wearable objects and perhaps approached from this sense of jewelry and, and an object that becomes really important to the person rather than just thinking about its function? I think it's incredibly important because for a whole range of reasons. One, because it's good for us to have things that are part of our identity and things that we love and cherish. And to me, that is a really nice way to get around the issue of compliance with healthcare. So, so often you hear about people being told you must wear this the doctor told me to do this. So there's these issues of compliance, um, as opposed to if you design something that is you know, beautiful and we, we want to wear it, we want to embrace it, but that it also, almost as an aside, has this therapeutic functionality. It's a much friendlier way to get around those healthcare scenarios. What do you think are currently sort of the barriers for, or sort of what is stopping this from happening all the time? Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons. One of them is that um, big, really large companies are putting their money where the big markets are. And the big markets are in um, the worried well, monitoring their steps, basically. So Fitbits and, you know, activity trackers and whatnot. Um, as opposed to looking at places you know, or looking at markets for people that have chronic health conditions. You know, we think about some of diabetes or cardiovascular disease or any of some of the conditions that we're working with at the moment. Um, so I think there's that side of things, which is the, the big companies aren't necessarily looking at these as markets, but hopefully over time they're starting to realise that these are very important things. Um, and I think there's also this hangover from you know, um, sort of the medical field, which is about efficacy, cleanliness, um, you know, clinical diagnostic devices need to be a certain way, need to look a certain way. And that human experience element has sort of been left out of that. Or it's, um, it's been integrated in terms of human factors engineering. It's, you know, it's, it looks medical, it's, it's either, you know, sort of shiny white or it's disabled beige or it's, you know, these hideous grey colours that, you know, we would never really want to wear. Um, but it ticks all these other boxes and, you know, and there just seems to be a strange lag um, and a sense that if it is clinically efficacious that we don't have to worry about its aesthetics. But uh, I, I disagree with that very strongly. And do you think that because we have, as designers, perhaps are very much trained and we've got experience in this arena and we understand it very well that this is important, but the medical field is, of course, focused on other things, but there's therefore also a, perhaps a difference in language used? And is that, do you think, something that is changing or do you still feel that there might be also a little bit of a difficulty in communicating 
um, particularly when we talk about empathy. And it's very hard to describe perhaps these things and, and, and convey these concepts. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a language barrier there. And what is helping to overcome that is the integration of kind of design thinking into much more sort of, you know, a whole range of different areas. It's very slow in healthcare and at the moment it's really kind of around experience-based co-design or co-design in, in patient experience tends to be the main area where design is showing up. Um, but the shift or the bleed from that into, you know, the development of products and devices, diagnostic, therapeutic devices, um, monitoring devices, I, I feel like there's a bit more of a shift into that space. Um, I think also where the language happens, so when you think about developing devices, so either diagnostic or drug, so drug monitoring devices or um, diagnostic devices or devices that administer um, medications into the body, a lot of the hard science happens a long time before we get to the form factor. And so it might be five to seven years beforehand. There's a lot of work going on at the bench, as we say, you know, in the scientific labs. And I think that's when a lot of decisions get made that can impact on form and user experience. And that's why my public speaking is all around advocating for the role of designers to come in a lot earlier and have those conversations with, you know, it might be with nanotechnologists or material scientists to say, well, that's really amazing, but, you know, what's it going to look like? What's it going to feel like? You know, what sort of emotions will it evoke? might be four years down the track but let's think about those things early mm, that's very interesting you spend a significant amount collaborating and developing this project sort of leading the way at how it can be done how is this work then funded uh, a range of different ways um, so my work you know, spans the speculative to the commercial because commercial takes a long time and you know some of those technologies might take five years or four years or three years. Like it's, a, it's a long period of time to go from idea and concept design all the way through to FDA and TGA approval and into market. So I think it's really important that as practitioners, we don't see that as the only form of success. So speculative projects are really useful because they keep the dialogue going. Um, and so they might be funded in different ways to the big commercial projects because the commercial projects might need a few million dollars, whereas a speculative project could be quite, fast turnaround and just, you know, potentially arts funding or university funding to do those. Um, so there, I tend to work on two different scales of projects and, you know, some of them are kind of large scale um, governmental industry grants and the others are, are more sort of local scale um, funding. Yeah. Mm. And the speculative projects, how important is exhibiting those and what is the aim of them after you've made them? Yeah, ex um, exhibitions, I think, are really critical to keeping the dialogue going. Um, and the value of speculative work in that space is that it encourages people to rethink, you know, what possible, what possible medical devices, what they might look like, what they might feel like. And it, it's almost, um, it can be sort of slightly political too, because it enables people to say, hang on, do I have to use a syringe? Why can't I, you know, have a beautiful piece of jewellery that administers my insulin every day? You know, why do I rely on this big, chunky, hideous monitor when I could have a beautiful piece of jewellery to do the same job? And to ask those questions of, you know, big pharma, why is this not happening? Um, and often it does come down to, you know, where the investments are being put 
from those larger companies. So I think um, the value of exhibitions is in increasing debate and increasing consciousness around choice, um, but also creating communities of you know practitioners like I'm speaking to you today, and you know you might see my work one day as it's flowing through the UK. Um, yeah, I think those all of those things are really important. As a designer, you work with craftsmen to produce pieces. How does that work and how does that interweave in your practice? Yeah, um, I just love working with craftspeople. And uh, it's really, I've just been in the workshop last week, just before we, we've gone down to lockdown again for another five days. So, But last week I was in the workshop you know, with one of my colleagues who is you know, very clever with metal. And we've been doing some speculative pieces that are looking at you know what beautiful wearable sensors might look like and they're crafted brass objects that we can use in a photo shoot to you know get this i call it the beauty bypass debate going which is why you know why can't we make beautiful looking things that we're going to stick on people why do they have to look so awful um so the yeah so that um engagement with practitioners who have their own uh, you know, whole arsenal of skills is incredibly important to me. And one of the, you know, the main projects that that was a big part of was the Smart Heart, which is a necklace to replace the cardiac holds monitor. And I was lucky enough to work with a team of weavers for 18 months on that project um, and a team of engineers. And there was this, you know, the biggest challenge in the project was was being, as a designer, you're sort of the, the intermediary, the person in the middle, the go-between. Um, and helping the weavers to understand engineering constraints and requirements and enabling the engineers to understand weaving constraints and requirements and um, and what was the language that I could bring to that that would enable that communication to flow. And um, so I ended up developing a whole series of prototype diagramming techniques and we, we established one form that worked very well as a non-verbal communication mechanism between the two. Yeah, but you only get those amazing projects if you if you engage with the craftspeople and the, all those experts and bring them together. Mm. Yeah, I always wonder when you go into a collaboration like that, that you have to find a way, one, to communicate like you've just explained and, and that meets the person's background and sort of way of communication. But at the same time, you've got to go in and also find the right people to do those collaborations because it does depend, I guess. Have you experienced sort of what is a really good process to identify the right people as part of collaborations? That's a really good question. I think it's you can't really tell from someone's CV if they're going to be a great collaborator. Um, and I'm very much of a, the trust has to come first, we build a relationship, and then that leads to a collaboration. And so in my work with the wearables and sensing network, it's all about how do we create moments of connection and intimacy and connectedness between people so that they can build bonds of trust that will precede you know, healthy collaborations. And that the next time that person's thinking, oh, actually, I need some form around this or you know, I need some user experience study, oh, I met someone at that event and we had a cup of tea together. Um, so yeah it's it's a bit of trial and error and i think everyone's had challenges with collaborations but you get better at recognizing the nascent seeds of collaboration when you meet people and i think it's when you get that fizzle you know the excitement where you're like oh this is really exciting yeah and that's that's what i tend to do just i just really interested in what people do 
and um, ask lots of questions. And then I get excited about how design could scaffold around these sort of expertise areas. You mentioned you are the co-director of the RMIT Wearables and Sensing Network. Could you tell us a little bit more about sort of the events that you do and what was the main aim and where is it going in the future? Um, so that's a network that brings together about, I think we've got about 79 researchers across 12 university schools. And, you know, they're from very diverse backgrounds like you know, material science, fine art, jewellery making, um, advanced textiles, like all sorts of walks of life, business, entrepreneurship. Um, and the, the main aim of that is just to build awareness of each other's practices and to try and create a space where we can start to, like a, not necessarily a physical space, but a, yeah, a website, you know, an environment where people can start to learn about what each other do. And so 2019 was a great year for face-to-face. <laughs> 2020 was a terrible year for it. So um, but 2019, we ran a number of really fabulous events that were about um, building new languages between different, different expertise areas um, and also scaffolding those events with co-design toolkits and so did sort of large-scale mappings using kind of one of my toolkits that I adapted. Um, trying to, so we did like, a, I'll send you some pictures so, you know, the audience maybe can see, but um, a two-metre-wide capability map, which is basically using my tactile tools, which is um, these beautiful acrylic tiles, and everyone had to build their own expertise their skills, their capabilities and their partners. And all of the that, you know, my expertise comes up against your expertise. So let's have a little chat about, you know, what happens there. It was a really wonderful opportunity for people to have conversations and shared experience that hopefully leads to something. Um, so, yeah, so the basic thing about the network is how do we identify people that are interested in the area and how do we bring them together and build you know, build their understanding of each other's fields and then start to try and draw out some of these larger scale projects from that. And so is it mainly Australian-based practitioners or is it global? Well, actually, it has been within our university, but now we're starting to open out to, because we've had a bit of time to um, coalesce our internal group and now we're facing outwards. So I'm going to be inviting people to join the network and... Um, you know, just try and host more like conversations and talks about that are international and national about the value of wearable technologies for large impact areas like health, sustainability, environment and ageing. Ageing is another area, key area of interest. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, a central part of your practice is facilitating these design thinking workshops using the tactile tools methodology you've just mentioned. Could you tell us a little bit more about this methodology and how you sort of, how this came about as part of your practice as well? Sure, yes. So um, back in, oh, I think it was 2016, I was working in a cancer hospital and I was trying to think about ways that we could bring together all of these different experts, you know, from client services to the oncologists, to the nurses and nurse practitioners, a whole range of people and patients in a way that would enable um, diverse groups of people to problem solve in a very iterative way. And so in my wearables practice, I do lots of iteration. So I, I make hundreds, literally hundreds of models. And those models are really important for you know, diverse teams to be able to problem solve. 
and I thought we could do the same sort of things with problems. You know, it's not a product, but it's a it's an issue that we need to solve, like improving cancer care, understanding lived experience of brain injury. We've we've used it in a number of you know really complex areas. Yeah, so we um, designed this toolkit, which is called the Tactile Tools, um, and it's basically acrylic tiles that have meanings. And um, so there's a goal tile, there's workarounds, there's roadblocks, um, there's moments of empathy, and then there's sort of pathway tiles. And we've used it in about with about 250 people um, from all sorts of walks of life, but in scenarios like. Um, acquired brain injury, um, voluntary assisted dying, um, or uh, improving the human-centeredness of engineers was another challenge that we focused on. Yeah, so we've used it in all sorts of different scenarios. And, um, and I think the, the interesting parallel with the wearables practice is that it's iterative and that we keep improving and refining it as we go. Yeah, so it's just sort of another wing. And if people are interested in learning more about the toolkit, there is a web page with lots of information. Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. I will put a link um, to the web page on the on the podcast. Um, when people are interested in all of this, because listening as a jeweler, we use prototypes a lot to problem solve, and but we use a different terminology perhaps to describe these things and your human-centered approach and, and the design aspects. Could you recommend any maybe books that you think are really interesting for people to read who might not know as much about sort of the design approach to these um, concepts? It, it really depends on what direction you're heading. And I suppose one of them, because we think of prototypes as generative artifacts, and so they're generative from the very beginning. So from the, you know, the first clay little scrappy model you know, all the way to the finished beautiful product. So we, we try to think of those as generative all the way through. And I think that comes from the framing of um, Elizabeth Sanders and there's her work in Make Tools. So all of her work is really wonderful. And it's about um, the role of tools, you know, tools, we think of prototypes and tools as ways to engage participation in the design process. Um, and one of the other kind of key books that I come back to a lot is um, called Doing Sensory Ethnography by Sarah Pink. And um, what that's useful for is what do you do with the prototypes that you make or the artwork that you make? If you're, I host a lot of kind of co-design engagements when I'm designing wearables. And we think about what are the artifacts that we bring to those engagements in order to create trust between myself and the participants. And that also stretches into the tactile tools work and the wearables network as well. Um, and so she kind of has this really nice way of thinking about interviews and focus groups, which is that they are these multi-layered sensory events where everything is important, the, the time and the smell and the, you know, the cakes and all of the design artifacts are very, very important in creating a sense of kind of placemaking. So they're, they're sort of two off the top of my head. Thanks so much, Leah. I, I guess just whilst you were talking, your diverse background with, with interior design, and does that sort of all feed into that sensory approach to all of your work? Yeah, very much so. So my first degree was in communications, and then my second degree was in 
interior design and then I did a master's which was the wearables that was more garment based and then my PhD which really focused on the wearable health technologies but they all sort of I guess they I don't think any education is ever lost because it just sort of accumulates and builds upon each other but the um, the interior design particularly that's all around our sensory experiences of space and what I found in my own practice was that I started in my master's um, designing the first wearable I designed was called the empathy vest and it was pretty ugly it was made out of like wetsuit material and electroluminescent cable all over it and had a big fan on the backpack and it was it was pretty chunky um, but that was about taking the information from the architectural environment and then experiencing it on the body so I was very interested in like the relationship between humans and interiors and then it was almost as though throughout the rest of the work the space got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until I became kind of almost obsessed with these tiny spaces on the body you know like the clavicles and you know the spaces um, you know, kind of no spaces in the mouth and around the place, yeah. So they, they were my little interiors and all my teaching started to become more about that sort of jewellery scale, tiny micro spaces and how we could inhabit them or um, think about them as sites for investigation. So, yeah, I think, I think that's sort of where a lot of this came from. Last question. What projects are you sort of currently working on? Is there anything that you can share with us, sort of what is coming up for you in 2021 or beyond? Um, what can we look forward to seeing you do next? Um, yeah, I'm working on a few things, but sort of the major projects that I'm working on at the moment are around the use of an incredible new technology, which is a stretchable sensor that was designed by designed and patented by my colleagues at OMIT, Sharath Sriram and Madhu Baskaran. And it's this incredibly beautiful technology that is transparent. Um, it can be coded to detect um, UV, gases, um, stress, like also we're using it for cardiovascular disease, pre-diabetes, and we're also looking at drug monitoring. So what I'm looking at is, um, and I'm also actually using that in a project in aged care for COVID monitoring because we can detect um, uh, heart rate, blood oxygen and temperature with these. So it can be the size of a 10 cent piece and transparent basically. Um, so I'm really interested in how we can integrate these beautiful sensors and they could be, they're like skins basically, it's like an extra layer of skin into, into our monitoring devices. So I'm working on kind of smart patches and um, and that's one where there's the, you know, the, you know, under non-disclosure agreement stuff, you know, which takes years and years and years until anyone sees it. And then I've decided to do a parallel run of speculative projects that I think I'll be able to talk about much and show much more readily, which would be great. So stay tuned in that space. Brilliant. I, I heard you say on another podcast that you should always have three outcomes for everything you do. And I really love that. What's the, the thinking behind that, perhaps as a, as a last sort of add-on question? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a piece of advice I always give my students. Like if you're going to make something, if you're going to invest your time in something, just make sure that you can use it in three different ways. And I had sort of almost forgotten that I used to say that quite a lot, but I think I still practice it. So I think if I'm going to make a prototype, then the prototype, or you know, I'm going to make something that's going to become part of a photographic series. It's going to go into a paper. It's going to become part of some other publishable outcome. And it's just making sure that you um, 
kind of leverage the value of what you create as opposed to just, you know, continually pouring your energy into making more and more and more and more and more different things. Yeah, so, you know, and that really applies to looking at your back catalogue as well. What have I already done in this space that, you know, that I could draw upon or I could bring forth into this new project? That's something that I do quite a lot, you know, and I start to see, especially in the PhD, as you'll find, you start to kind of draw threads back through, through your practice quite a long way back and start to see how um, ideas were, had their sort of nascent beginnings many years ago often. So that's sort of tied up into, it's also a strategy of being a parent and not having very much time. Yeah, yes, you've got to optimize. <laughs> sure, totally. There are still many problems in the world. Researchers and medical staff are trying to improve and resolve outside of the coronavirus pandemic. And when you look at the collaborative project Leah has been working on and is working on, you can see that collaborations across disciplines can be fruitful and powerful in addressing issues in a sensitive and empathic way. For sharing her design thinking methodology, practice and thoughts today, I would like to thank you wholeheartedly, Leah. You are working on incredibly inspirational projects and leading the way in interdisciplinary working to make real world change with designs and, and we are very grateful for your efforts in this field. So thanks so much for joining me for this inspiring conversation from across the world. Oh, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So next month, I'll be joined by another guest. So watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast series, Wearable Objects for Human Health with Dr. Leah Heiss. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.